You may be seated. Man, God just wrecked me during worship. I just wrecked me. So I want to thank uh, everybody that filled in for me. I haven't had a chance to listen to hardly any of it, but I look forward to uh, being able to do that. Uh, I trust it was good. <laughs> but we're doing a series called Rocking the Rolls. And, and so I was just thinking, you know, uh, what, where, where do I come? I've been out for a few weeks. And uh, Lord, what do you want me to share? And so I want, I want to just talk today about marriage, because one of the problems I think that we have is that when we begin to redefine or we begin to look at roles in marriage in a different way than maybe we've traditionally done it, it can leave us with the question of then how do we make things work? Now, what I want to share with you will work in every facet of your life. So I don't want you to think just marriage. I'm just using marriage as an example. But you can take the principles that I'm going to share with you and you can apply them to every area of your life and you can see benefit and you can see blessing that will come to you. Okay? But since we're talking about uh, rocking the roles. So if you, if you haven't been with us, one of the things that we've been doing is deconstructing what has been, I think, predominant within much of the Christian understanding of how uh, gender roles are defined, even though the Bible clearly teaches in Galatians chapter 3, which we've been going, I'm sure, over and over, that in Christ there is neither male nor female, that we are all one in Christ. And he's dealing with social distinctions there because he talks about there not being slave nor free. He talks about there not being male nor female. He talks about there not being Jew nor Greek, right? So, so what he's saying is that Christ transcends race, Christ transcends social status or position or class, and Christ transcends gender. And there is an absolute equality and unity that we have in Him that's the foundation for everything that we do. Now, one of the things that I think we need to realize when we talk about marriage specifically, or we talk about the battle of the sexes, or, or roles that we have, or whatever, we need to understand that the fall of Adam and Eve, the immediate impact really wasn't uh, experienced. I'm talking about the way, it, the way it's laid out sequentially and the way that they experienced it, the way that it's described to us that they experienced the fall. The immediate impact was not felt between them and God. The first thing that they did not feel was shame or fear or whatever towards God. The first thing that they noticed was that they themselves were naked. And the first thing that they did was begin to put some division between the two of them. In other words, the fall directly affected the family and it directly affected the marriage relationship first. Before they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they get afraid and they hide and all that stuff, the, the relationship this way horizontally between human beings, you could take this and apply this to any relationship with human beings, was affected first. So, without going into the story, I trust you know the story. There's a serpent, which is the wisest of God's creation, right? The most subtle, I think some passages say, but he was the wisest of the animals. And when Eve eats, she eats from the tree of knowledge. And she eats from the tree of knowledge because it's desirable to make one wise. So really the temptation for Eve was wisdom and knowledge. See, one of the things, I, I did this when I was in Arkansas. Uh, they wanted me to do some stuff on, on, you know, the whole gender issues and stuff like that. And one of the things that I, I ended up really going after there, and I've just been thinking about it more and more, is, you know, they, I'll, I'll, I'll share it with you this way. And I'm sorry I'm bouncing around. I guess I'm just rusty after a couple weeks preaching or something. But, um, but I subscribe to this newsletter that, that prints articles about all the latest brain research. And I remember a couple of years ago, there was a lot of research that this group had been doing on the differences uh, gender differences and the differences in the brains of men and women. And so they were somehow, you know, I don't know how they do all this stuff. 
I don't get caught up in all that stuff. I just read the results, right? And uh, so you know what they found out when they looked at a man's brain, they looked at a woman's brain, you know, and looking for distinctions, differences, that kind of thing. You know what they found out? They found out that a man's brain and a woman's brain are exactly alike. <laughs> They're absolutely exactly the same. <laughs> and I realized that a lot of uh, marriage seminars, how, how many of you ever been to a marriage seminar? How many of you ever went to a marriage seminar because you felt like you had to? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> How many of you went uh, kicking and screaming? How many of you hate going to a marriage seminar because you just feel you're going to walk out of there beat up and and just ashamed of all the stuff maybe you shouldn't be doing or whatever? Okay, maybe I'm talking to the wrong crowd. But but a lot of what you read about and see at marriage, different marriage seminars and stuff is these distinctions between men and women. And typically it goes something like this. A woman uh, is more emotional. A man is more intellectual. A woman has, I don't know, 65,000 words a day or whatever number they pull out of the air that she speaks in a day. And a man has 15,000. So the man comes home from work and he's already uh, used his words. And the woman still has a bunch of words to use. And, and if we could just to understand these distinctions, then we can make things work. Anybody ever heard something like that? But the reality is, I'm totally convinced that that whole model has nothing to do with biology at all. I am totally convinced that that is completely social engineering. And if anything, it's teaching us that as a rule in, in culture, at least as it has been, that men are taught to be emotionally unavailable. But if you look at the story of the fall, let's just take that one. How many of you have been taught women are more emotional, men are more uh, intellectual and in their brains? Anybody ever heard that or been taught that? Look at the fall. Eve was the one that was tempted by wisdom and knowledge. Adam was the one who made an emotional decision. Eve was the one that saw the tree and said, wow, this can make me wise. This can provide knowledge for me. And Adam was the one that was like, I'm losing my wife. I guess I better just go with whatever she's saying. All right. But, but here's, the, here's the thing. That when they ate at the tree of knowledge, they ate at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And fear became their base emotion. Fear became their base, base emotion, and that led to shame. Withdrawal, hiding, and ultimately blame shifting. Now, this describes a lot of marriages. Let me just say it again. Fear, shame, withdrawal, hiding, blame shifting. Right? So eating, here's my point, eating at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil resulted in great distortions of themselves because they knew that each other was naked. Or, or let's, let's get past the whole, you know, physical aspect of this and let's just look at it this way. They began to see what was lacking in the other. They began to see what was lacking in the other or they began to see what was lacking in themselves. And as a result, they tried to compensate for that, or they tried to cover up from that, or they began to separate from each other based on what they saw each other lacking. You know, I'm convinced, and I could be wrong, and I'm not picking on the church, but I'm part of it. I love the church. I've given my life to it more than most people have. So I think I have earned some right to at least give some kind of a critique. Not to be critical, but to give some kind of a critique, right? And hopefully do it from a really good place and from a good intention. But I think that perhaps Christian marriages struggle more than marriages that aren't, that, that, that don't have that. And I think some of that is because we spend more time, oftentimes, eating at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil than we do eating at the tree of life. And when you eat at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you begin to evaluate everything through that good-evil lens. And so you begin to see yourself through a good and evil lens. You begin to see your spouse through a good and evil lens. You begin to see other people through a good and evil lens. You can even begin to see God through a good and evil lens. So the real lie at the tree of knowledge is this. The real lie is that our own evaluations or decisions based upon good and evil, can lead to life and godliness. Let me say that again. We eat at the tree of knowledge every time we trust our own evaluations or our own decisions 
based on our own evaluation of what is good and what is evil, and we think that that's going to lead us into life, and we think that's going to lead us into godliness. That's the deception. The reality is, is it doesn't lead to life, and it doesn't... See, the, the serpent said what? You shall not surely die, but you shall what? Be like God. Right? So when you eat at the tree of knowledge, here's what you're doing. You are seeking wisdom and knowledge to apply to yourself for your own ends in the hopes that it will produce life and godliness. Some places we call it Bible study. (laughs) Don't shout me down now just because I'm preaching good, right? Here's how this works out in marriage. We go to a marriage seminar, and we try to discover what is the role that I'm supposed to fulfill as a husband. Or the wife goes, and what is the role that she's supposed to fulfill as a wife? Or, come on, let's be honest, we're going more so that my wife can find out what role she needs to fulfill, and my wife's thinking, I'm going so my husband can find out what role he can fulfill, because if the other would just act right, then everything would be great. Don't shout me down now just because I'm preaching good. What are we doing? We're looking for knowledge to evaluate things on what it means to be a good husband, what it means to be a good wife, what it means to be a good spouse, what it means to be a good partner. And then we're eating at that and trying to apply it to make something work. And the end result is always fear, shame, withdrawal, blame shifting and death. So we just keep perpetuating it. Now, that doesn't have to do with marriage. That could have to do with anything. You could go to a financial seminar. You could go to a marriage seminar. You could go to a parenting seminar. You could anything in life and say, okay, I'm going to find out. I'm going to gain wisdom. I'm going to gain knowledge. And then I'm going to apply it to my life. And and everything's going to work. But the reality is, come on, gang, let's just be honest. It's not working. (laughs) I mean, it really isn't working out for us. All it does is it puts us under a false standard that we try to live up to and then beat ourselves up because we're not living up to it, which just leads to more shame and more condemnation and more alienation and more separation and more blame shifting and more finger pointing and more frustration with God and one another. Because all that stuff can't give life. We have steps, we have patterns, we have rules, we have guidelines, we have principles, and we believe if we can learn and master them that we'll have happy marriages, raise great kids, be wealthy, have success, live healthy, whatever. But the reality is, is None of those things in and of themselves can give life. Let's see how Jesus does this in John. Jesus addresses this. I keep coming back to this passage over and over and over again because I don't think I'm getting it. I think the Lord keeps taking me here and taking me here and taking me here because I'm continually tempted. I don't know about you. I probably struggle with this more than anybody else in this room to be continually tempted to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or eat from the tree of knowledge thinking that the wisdom that I gain there is somehow going to lead to life and godliness. So I'm just confessing. Look at what Jesus says here. John 5, 39. John 5.39, Jesus says, You study the Scriptures diligently. Now watch this. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now, he's not just talking... By the way, this word eternal life, he's not talking about just the, the next life. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's the life of God. It's, it's the quality of the life that God has. And because God's eternal, it also is eternal. So it's, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He's using the same word. In John 17, the very same author, John 17, verse 3, he says, this is life eternal. Now watch this. Get this. This is life eternal, that you may know him, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. So Jesus defines eternal life as the knowledge of God and the knowledge of His Son. Now, is it fair for me to take Jesus, what He says He means when He talks about eternal life in John 17, in the same book and apply it back here? Is that fair exegesis? Am I being, am I being 
unfair? Am I putting words in Jesus' mouth or am I, is, is he explaining things to us as it goes along? Because if we understand eternal life, not as having to do with when you die, you go to heaven, but having to do with knowing who God is and knowing who his son is, then let's read it differently. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you can know God and know his son Jesus. All right. Don't shout me down. I don't know why I'm saying that today. He says, these are the very same scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You study the scriptures because in them you think that you, they have, in them you think there is eternal life, but they testify about me. You can find out about me and still not have life. You can find out about me and still not know me. That's what Jesus is saying. The only way you can really know me and the only way you can really have life is if you come to me. <laughs> See, that's why we, we actually preach a risen Savior. We, we, <laughs> the, the Bible actually teaches that Jesus rose from the dead. The Bible actually teaches that Jesus is still alive. The Bible actually teaches in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, we no longer know Jesus after the flesh, even though we once knew Him that way. What's it mean to know Him after the flesh? To know Him as a historical person. We don't know Him as a historical person. We know Him as a living Savior. And he goes so far in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, to say the mystery that God's been hiding for all these generations is the living Christ in you. He is the hope of glory. So here's the deal. What, what Jesus is saying, what the Bible is teaching us, what the Bible says about Jesus is that He is alive. What the Bible says about Jesus is that He has transcended His limitations of His earthly life and has become literally omnipresent. Therefore, we no longer know Him as contained in historical pages of the Gospel. We know Him as a living, ever-present reality in whom we live and move and have our very being right now because He's inside of us. The Bible teaches that this living Christ by the Holy Spirit has taken up residency inside our life and inside of our hearts. And it's Him that gives life. In another place, John says, in John chapter 5, he says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The issue of life is about having the Son, not about having wisdom or knowledge. And certainly not about having wisdom or knowledge about the Son. Because that is absolutely the most deceitful. Because you can think you know Him because you know about Him. You can think you know Him because you quote Scripture. You can think you're a quote-unquote good Christian eating at the good tree of life with all the wisdom and knowledge that God has and still be reproducing death. That's what Jesus is saying. The issue is not that the Bible... I've come a long way. In my journey. Because I used to teach and believe and adhere to the fact that I thought the Bible was a self-help book. It was sort of like a, an owner's manual for living. I know you all were smarter than that, but... <clears throat> I thought, you know, i just go in there and find out what the Bible says about raising kids, and I'll raise good kids. i go in there and find out what the Bible says about having a good marriage, being a good husband, and I can be a good husband. i go in there and find out what the Bible says about healing, and I can get healed. i go in there... Because it's just, it's an encyclopedia that God's given us for life. That ain't true. The Bible never says that about itself. The Bible is written by people who are having experiences with God, who are struggling with God, especially in the Old Testament. Struggling with God and struggling with who He is. And they're giving the testimony of their experience about God. Habakkuk, Habakkuk was not written so you could have a good marriage. Neither was Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel or Nehemiah or Zephaniah or any of those guys. Genesis was not written to tell you how to live. And there was silence in Pueblo West for the space of a half hour. It's true. What the Bible says about itself repeatedly... 
is that it's the testimony that God gave us about His Son so that we could come to the Son and have life. David said it this way. He said, Thy word, O Lord, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Right? Well, if you've got a lamp lighting your feet on a path, you're going someplace. The lamp is not the journey. The light is not the journey. It's there to guide you on the journey, and the journey is supposed to lead you to Him because He really is alive, and He really does speak today, and He really does give life, and it's only by coming to Him that life is given. Which means the only way for marriage to work is for Christ to give life to your marriage. The only way you can be a good husband or a good wife is for the life of God from Christ personally, relationally flowing inside of you. One of the biggest lies we hear in church is Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. That's a lie. I mean, it's true, but we don't practice it that way. We set a fault. We, we have really bad mismanaged expectations because we tell people you have a relationship with Jesus, uh, but you've got to live life according to the book. And if you step outside the parameters of the book, naughty, naughty. Uh-oh. Now, I'm not saying you throw the lamp away and stumble around in the dark. But what I am saying is if Jesus is alive and he lives inside of us and all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him, then he ought to know how to do life with you. He ought to know how to make your life work the way he intended it for it to work. Not you coming to the tree of knowledge, separating it from its source, eating it and applying it. Because if you look carefully at the text, I still contend there was only one tree in the middle of the garden. Not two, but that's another message for another day. All right, I better move on. All right. So here's the point. If you're using Scripture for anything other than to lead you into a life-giving encounter with the Lord, even the good you do based on Scripture will produce death. I think I better say that again. If you're looking at Scripture for anything other than it producing in you an actual life-giving encounter with the Lord Jesus, even the good that you try to do will produce death in your life and leave you disappointed, full of shame, full of fear, full of condemnation, and things not working. We only have one problem. You realize every problem you have can boil down to one thing. Come with me, John 15. I haven't spent a lot of time in John. We really only have one problem. Only one. See, we throw things at people and say, if you want to be a good Christian, you've got to get this fixed, and 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 we become just like the next... And we're not even good at it. Anthony Robbins is way better at self-help than we are. Come on, saints. Come on. PBS does a better job. They're little... Anyway. Because we're not supposed to be about that. We're supposed to be about encountering Christ. We're supposed to be Christians. I want to do a message putting Christ back in the Christian. <laughs> John 15, look at this. John 15, 1. I... Am the true vine. Now remember, even though it's a tree of knowledge, in Second Temple Judaism, the culture that Jesus is speaking about, they believed that the fruit that Adam and Eve ate was a grape. So Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the, of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. And if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You've got one job. You and I have one job as Christians. One job. One job. Abiding in Him. If you abide in Him, life will be flowing and you'll be bearing fruit. If you don't abide in Him, no matter what you do, nothing's going to work. Now, let me help you here, because I used to think that I was just a one branch. What? <laughs> you know, it was a shock to me when I started studying mental health, mental health how mentally unhealthy my thinking was. Because <laughs> one of the thought distortions that they teach you about, you know, when you're working with people, one of the, one of the indicators of a lack of a healthy way to think, not necessarily of mental illness, but just... The, the thinking distortions is an all or nothing thing where it's either you're either all good or all bad. And there's no so black and white thinking actually is very unhealthy way to live. Right. So if you read Jesus as I am the vine and you are the branches, meaning you are all one singular branch you're actually entering into a thought distortion that Jesus himself does not enter into of all-or-nothing thinking. Because you have several branches to your life. How many roles do you play? How many different things are you involved in in your life? How many different capacities do you have within yourself? Do you have the capacity to think? Do you have the capacity to feel? Do you have the capacity to imagine? Do you have the capacity to remember? Are you functioning in a role in the home? Are you functioning in a role in society? Are you functioning in a role in church? All of those things are branches. So you can have areas of your soul and areas of your life that are absolutely in step abiding with Him and you will be incredibly fruitful and you'll feel the presence of God and the power of God and the life of God flowing in those areas of your life. And then you can have other areas of your life that are barren and dry and dead. Yes? And we like to live on the fruit of one branch and ignore the deadness of these other branches because we don't like living on them. So what does God do? He, what does Jesus do? Or what does the Father do? He comes along and prunes. What does He do? He takes away the fruitfulness in an area where you were fruitful so you can't stay there. So that you are confronted with the dryness and the barrenness and the death of the branches that are in you that are not bearing fruit. Not so that you can go back to the tree of knowledge and figure out how to fix it, but so that you can realize I'm not remaining in Him. I'm not abiding in Him. I've disconnected from His life-giving flow somewhere in my life, and that's why I'm experiencing dryness and death. So rather than trying to figure out how to fix my problem, all I've got to do is figure out how to get that part of me plugged back into union, back into remaining, and back into abiding in who Christ is, and who Christ is in me. And the only way I can do that is coming to Him in a place of surrender. So I might be very fruitful financially. I might be very fruitful in ministry. I might be very fruitful in uh, my relationships with people. And I might be very barren in my marriage. So instead of running to a marriage seminar, not that they're bad, but the problem is, is if they just offer you more stuff to do and don't plug you back into him all all they're doing is creating more dead branches so what i need to do is come back and say okay lord when they ran out of wine at the feast what did mary say whatever he says to you do it even if it sounds crazy that's my little tag on the end So when I run out of wine, when I run out of fruitfulness, I come back to the marriage feast. I come back to him and I say, okay, Lord, whatever you say to me, I'll do it. 
And he might say, you need to go to that marriage seminar that they're having in um, Woodland Park in three weeks. He might say, "Yeah, maybe you should get some counseling. He might say, well, you need, you're carrying a bit of root that you need to let go of. He might say, you just need to chill. He might even tell you, that image you have of being a good husband, that wasn't me, and I didn't make you that, and I don't like that person. And neither does your spouse. <laughs> so why don't you stop trying to be that and just chill out and be who I made you to be? He might say that. He, he might say, I'm using this situation as a crucible to show you what's in you that you refuse to see about yourself. Now, th- this is an incredibly empowered place to live, and this is the hardest place, I think, to get people, especially in our culture. I've got to tell you, I just came from a week at Disney, and I don't know, I, I was disheartened with our society. Don't they call Disney like the happiest place on earth? It's no wonder people are doing drugs. <laughs> if that's true. If it's the happiest place on earth. Because I didn't see too many happy people there. I saw people mad at their kids. I saw people worn out. I saw people pushing to get, I mean pushing to get, cutting underneath, you know, to get in line ahead of you. I'm like, we're going to get on the same roller coaster. You're going to be two seats ahead of me at best. You're going to be ten seconds behind me, but you're shoving and elbowing. And Finally, one family, the family, kids, mom, dad, everybody, pushing past me and Julie with our two boys. I'm getting in line. And, and, and Elijah's sense of justice was violated. This has absolutely nothing to do with, with abiding in Jesus, but, but, well, maybe it does, but, but, but get in line. And, 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 and Elijah's sense of justice is violated. And he's like, hey, you know, they, they, daddy, they cut. And I said, that's okay, son. We're better than that. We can let them go ahead. It's, it's all right. Lady turns to me, oh, did you want to go ahead? No, no, no. You missed your chance to look good. <laughs> I really did. I really did. See that? <laughs> but my point in that is, is I, I just came back and I said, we feel so entitled. We bring such a, a sense of entitlement into everything. And, and we act like our emotional well-being depends on stuff outside of us. And that actually is our problem. That actually is our problem. Jesus wants to be the source of your emotional well-being. He wants, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, whatever, self-control, right? That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's something that comes from within. Our problem is we want it to come from without, just like Eve. We want to eat from something else that we think, we want to eat the fruit of something. We think if we eat that fruit, it'll give me love. If I eat that fruit, it'll give me joy. But the reality is, is you are completely 100% responsible for the condition of your soul. 100% responsible before God. 100% responsible for the condition of your soul. So the most empowered place for you to live and the hardest place it ever is to get anybody is that you and I are responsible. In other words, this has to be your beginning affirmation to get anywhere in life. To say to yourself, I am responsible for everything I think, everything I say, everything I do, and everything I feel. I'm responsible for it. That doesn't mean you're responsible for what goes on in life that may trigger those emotions. Having responsibility for something doesn't mean having, not having them. I'm resp- <laughs> I am responsible for my children. I understand that as a parent. If I'm at the airport with things of luggage and I'm getting the luggage off the cart, and Julie went to get the, the car at DIA. 
And I'm standing there with two car seats and two huge things of luggage and two boys and I gotta get on an elevator and one of them has to go to the bathroom. Daddy, I gotta go really bad right now. And Julie's stuck in some line waiting to come get me. I'm responsible for those kids. So when you go push the button <laughs> for the elevator, you go up to the elevator and the kids have been pushing buttons on the elevator every day and they push the button and you got like 10 elevators to choose from and I'm over here with all my stuff <laughs> and they go running into this elevator they just opened and the door is getting ready to close. If they get on that elevator and I cannot find them, I am still responsible for them. They're, they're awful in airports. Terrible. We, we, when we took them to Disneyland, this is Disney World, so Orlando's a little bit, but we took them to LAX a couple of years ago. Like, I don't know, like LAX is like the size of Pudlow. Like it has like 100,000 employees or something. And it's, I'm convinced it's a developing nation. L.A. Sorry, all my friends in California, but I'm convinced California is a developing nation. <laughs> Just spent a week out there. Absolutely convinced of it. So we're taking them to LAX. Well, uh, uh, so we got them on leashes, you know, like the things. Come here. <laughs> Get back here. Because Jesus told us to. No. This was last year because, because like a few months before that, we went to Arkansas. We took the family just to Arkansas. Little Rock's a little airport. It's like Colorado Springs Airport, right? And we're walking around Little Rock Airport and Josiah, the youngest one, man, he shoots off and these kids are fast. And before I know it, he's gone. He is on, we are going to Houston and he is on the plane to Atlanta. He went shooting right past the stewardess, right past the ticket taker. He is marching down the, the, the thing, the, whatever they call those big things. And, and he is getting on the plane to go to Atlanta. And on it, and we had Tina with us. I don't, Tina's not here, but we had Tina with us. And, 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 and thank God. Cause Julie and I are sitting there looking at each other like, that ain't my kid, that's your son. <laughs> You go, I ain't getting him. You go get him. <laughs> really chivalrous of me. <laughs> Hadn't been to do enough of those marriage seminars to know my manly role. <laughs> so the only one with any sense in the group was Tina. So she comes along. <laughs> so here comes the, 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 I don't know, the pilot or somebody with our kid and just mad as hell. And so, hands, hands, is this your kid? Tina, Tina grabs him, and he just chews Tina out for what a lousy parent she is. And Julie and I were like, oh, thank God we brought Tina with us. Because <laughs> I didn't want to be responsible. <laughs> right? So when I'm so now, let me come back to my point. When I'm talking about emotions, I'm not saying because I felt the shame when I said you're responsible for everything you think and feel. And so if you're feeling emotions that are unpleasant, you can begin to think you you hear the language of blame in that because you've been eating too much at the tree of knowledge. So you think I'm speaking the language of shame? I'm not. I'm saying in the same way that you're responsible for raising your children, in the same way that you're responsible for managing your money, in the same way that you're responsible for managing yourself. Uh, in society, you are responsible. You and I are responsible for everything we say, everything we do, everything we think, and everything we feel. And when we begin to take responsibility for all that stuff, we step into an incredible place of empowerment. And at no, and, and does this come into, to help in no other place more than it does in marriage? Took me a long time to figure out that my wife was not the reason that I was getting upset. That whatever she was doing was activating something in me and the problem was not out here, the problem was in here. 
And so if I got angry, I wasn't, not that anger is always bad. Don't misunderstand me. I, it's so hard to talk to Christians because we've labeled so many things bad. I know because I counsel with them. Well, you need to forgive this. Oh, no, I've forgiven them. Pastor, I've forgiven this person that ripped me that dirty. dirty. But I know Jesus said forgive them, and I love them. And I'm like, really? Bring me a lost person. This is just... I, Pastor, I hate their guts. I want to kill them. If I I could get away with it and not go to prison, I'd just murder them dead. That I can work with. So I began to realize that when stuff would happen in the marriage, it was, it was to reveal to me issues about my own life. It was to reveal to me issues about my own heart. And, I, and so I really, had to, I really had to break out of this. Because here's, here's the thing about feelings. We have a tendency to assign them to behaviors. How many of you took psychology know anything about Pavlov's dog? Okay, Pavlov had a dog. <laughs> he, he, he assigned a certain stimulus, a sound, to a, like a dog biscuit. And every time the dog got the dog biscuit or got fed, he'd ring this bell or something. And then pretty soon he would just ring the bell and the dog would salivate. And so the, the point was, was that you begin to attach appetites, desires, internal stuff to external things. And without your permission, they activate. Without your conscious control, they activate. So a person who has anxiety attacks, something in their environment is triggering anxiety. But the trigger is not the anxiety. The anxiety is going on inside of them. It's association. So what happens is we build really bad, we can build really bad triggers. I'll talk about this more next week, but we can build really bad triggers in marriage. We can build healthy triggers. But we can build really bad ones where you fight back and forth. Your husband does something that the wife, and it triggers, and, and she's not only, and that feeling comes up, and she's not just thinking about this one time, she's thinking about all the other times before that, and, and unconsciously thinking about all the other people that did that before that, that were irritating. So then, the, your wife gets a look, and, Really fast up there. Like, go see Inside Out. That show, the kids, it's like, it's brilliant. And, and then you see that look, and now all of a sudden that triggers, you know, uh-oh. <laughs> I did it again. And that triggers fear. And then to compensate for the fear, out comes the, the avoidance or the anger or the aggression or whatever. Make sense? And you know what that's showing you? A branch that's not abiding. So you can spend the rest of your life, rest of your married life, just triggering each other. Or one of you, preferably both of you, but one of you can stop and take ownership for what's going on inside your life and bring it back to Jesus and say, okay, Lord, I'm getting triggered here. See, our goal in relationships is Walt Disney. I'm stuck on Disneyland. Happily ever after, whatever. God's goal (laughs) is your transformation. (laughs) And marriage is the crucible. No. (laughs) I'm picking up your stuff, not my stuff. I'm being prophetic. Um, whatever, that relationship, that situation at work, that marriage relationship, your kids, whatever it may be, is the crucible that's showing you what's inside your own life. And it's showing you where you're out of touch and where you're disconnected and where you're out of step and where you're not abiding in Him. And so don't go, you know, 
man, we, we have this idea, now, now to get real serious, we have this idea in the church that this is what a perfect Christian looks like. And we, we put it out there. This is what a perfect um, parent looks like. This is what a perfect spouse looks like. You know, I'm determined I'm not going to raise preacher's kids. I'm very serious about that. I'm not going to put on to my kids what I think you expect of them because they're my kids and I'm supposed to be holier than you. Not saying you do that, but I'm just saying that's the trap we fall into. And, what, and when that happens, when I take an image of a perfect, let's just use parenting. Most humbling experience of my life. Love my kids. With all my heart. But they, truthfully, they embarrass me sometimes. Like when we're at DIA and I'm waiting on the luggage and my wife has gone out to get the car and we only have one blanket. And they're fighting over the blanket. And one of them is screaming at the top of his lungs, where is my blanket? At 11 o'clock at night. And nothing, I'm telling him, is making a dent. And, there, and you know what? I'm okay with that. There's a time I wouldn't have been okay with that. Because my expectation was, after all, the Bible says, he that cannot rule his own house well cannot rule the house of God. And by all appearances, there are times I do confess, dear Lord Jesus, that I do not seem to be ruling my house well. It goes on in that verse, having their kids in all subjection to them. This from a man who was not married. This from a man who said it's better for a man not to marry. This from a man who said it's better for a man not to touch a woman. Says if you're going to rule the house of God, then let all your kids be in subjection. See, I know you think that the Bible's only divine, like dictated by God, but I think God left enough humanity in there that I think Paul might be a little embarrassed in heaven. Stone me a heretic if you want to. But I'm telling you, there's, there's a book out called God's General's Kids, and I'm going way over my time. Called God's General's Kids. And it's all about these guys that were, had big ministries that were mighty men and women of God and how their kids hated God, hated the ministry, hated the church, wanted nothing to do with God. If God's like my father, I don't want anything to do with him. Why? Because, bless God, I've got to have my kids in all subjection. So you see, we hold, up these, we hold up these images of what everything's supposed to be like based on our Christian culture and the social engineering inside of it. And you know what it is? You know, you know what that image is? When I pulled up an image that I tried to conform to that's other than the image of Jesus, what would we call that? That's an idol. So if I have in my mind the image of the perfect family, I have just exalted an idol in my own home and over my own children. And I wonder why there's no life. So Josiah can be screaming his head off. i got two choices. I can look good to people and train him to be emotionally unavailable and hide behind the excuse that he's a boy. Or I can say, this is life. Ain't it great? Jesus, help me. What do I do with this? I mean, I hate to break the news to you, but God got down in the mud when he made you. (laughs) Everything else he spoke by divine decree. Light be, grass yield, animals come forth. But when it came time to make you and me, he got down in the dirt and he played. And he got dirty, and he got muddy. And life is like that sometimes. 
Marriage is like that sometimes. Parenting is like that sometimes. Work is like that sometimes. I got news for you. Church is a lot like that sometimes. So if you think cleanliness is next to godliness, if you think holiness is the same as perfection, you may get your holiness and you may get your cleanliness, but you're going to lose life in the process because life is muddy, life is dirty, life is messy, and God likes it that way. And he wants to get in there with you and do life with you. And he wants to be able to release his life to you so that he can release his life through you. And the moment one person in any relationship, be it marriage or any other relationship, maybe it's the boss at work that you hate, but you can't admit because you love them because you're a Christian. Yeah, that one, that person. (laughs) The moment you surrender to Jesus... The moment you surrender, do you, do you realize that God blesses you just for trying? You realize you don't have to get it right. The, the, the deception of the law is that God blesses you for obedience and curses you for disobedience. But Jesus said God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. You realize that went totally counter to what Deuteronomy said? Deuteronomy said if you want rain, you have to obey. If you don't get rain, it's because you disobeyed. Jesus comes and shatters that and says, God makes it rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus' life was corrective lenses to how we see God. It isn't if you obey the Son, you have life. It's if you have the Son, you have life. It isn't if you obey the Son, you bear fruit. It's if you abide in the Son, you have fruit. So you don't have to hear Him perfectly and do it right. All you have to do is come to Him. These are they which testify about Me, but you will not come to Me that you might have life. So the moment I come to Him is the moment life begins to flow, even if I do it all wrong after that. Now don't get me wrong, if He says, you need to go to that marriage seminar... I quit abiding if I don't. But for some of us, we, I don't, maybe some of you, you don't know if you heard God. Maybe it's, too, maybe it's easier to look in a Bible because it is written than it is to trust a word coming from Christ in your own heart. You don't, you don't have to hear Him to have life. You don't have to do everything He says just right to have life. You just have to come to Him with an open heart. And he begins to release his life and his grace. And when that happens, everything about the relationship changes because you changed and you were part of the system. And you opened the door to eternal life. And that, I really believe, is not just how we make marriage work, but how we make life work. Amen?